to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show, Father Wesley Walker, and I just wanted to introduce what it is that we're doing this week. We are playing audio and video of Dr. David Bentley Hart from a book study that he engaged in at St. Benedict's Anglican Catholic Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And the topic for the discussion is his book, That All Shall Be Saved, a book about universal salvation. Uh, Dr. Hart hardly needs any introduction. He is currently a collaborative scholar at Notre Dame and the author of many wonderful and well-known books, including Atheist Delusions, uh, Doors of the Sea, The Experience of God, That All Shall Be Saved, and Tradition and Apocalypse. I do feel at the outset that we should provide a little bit of a caveat, which is namely that we as the sacramentalists don't necessarily endorse everything that Dr. David Billy Hart has written or even says in these episodes. That said, we think he is a brilliant theological mind who definitely deserves our engagement, Um, and so we hope these episodes will be edifying to you. The moderator for the discussion is Father Robert Hart. He is Dr. Hart's older brother. He is also the rector of St. Benedict's Anglican Church there in Chapel Hill. If you're ever in the Raleigh-Durham area or the surrounding area, um, I would really encourage you to check out St. Benedict's and what they have going on there. We wanted to extend a big thank you to Father Hart and to his curate, Deacon Nicholas Harrelson at St. Benedict's, for all the work that they did in putting on these events with Dr. Hart and for their generosity in sharing the audio and video with us. We also, of course, wanted to thank Dr. Hart for his willingness to spend time with all of us answering our questions and making sure that we understand his work even better. If you'd like to support us here at the Sacramentalist Podcast, we would love for you to follow us on social media, either on Facebook or Twitter. Um, We have a lively Facebook discussion group that we'd love for you to join as well. You can subscribe to us on YouTube and or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And finally, we are on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you can sign up to join the Communion of Patreon Saints. We give our members a number of perks, including access to our Discord community, which is a group of like-minded people who are all interested in growing in theological understanding. And so we'd love to have you as a part of that community. So without further ado, here's Dr. David Binley Hart and Father Robert Hart discussing that all shall be saved. Uh, I know you see my face and it has my wife's name, Diane Hart, but I assure you I'm Father Robert Hart. I'm the rector of St. Benedict's Anglican Catholic Church. And his his middle name is Diane, though. Study with my brother. Dr. David Bentley Hart on his book, uh, That All Shall Be Saved. And we're doing it uh, also with the cooperation and the the partnership of the Sacramentalists uh, podcast. So it will be heard and it will also be seen later, the recording of it. But uh, having people who can participate now live also is helpful because people to talk with questions to ask answers to get i will say i first met uh (laughs) dr david bentley hart my first encounter with him was in january of 1965 i was sitting on our mother's lap and i felt him kick me inside of her womb 
And I knew then he'd be a force to be uh, reckoned with. So I'm going to turn it over to him, actually, because he's used to talking about this. And I, I want to, to say right now that the, the main questions that we need to deal with uh, are really things that have been addressed. I, I'm trusting that those of you who are here already have either read the book or you are reading it. Um, so that you're, you know, on top of what we're discussing. Uh, but David, uh, how do you yeah. begin, as you, we were telling me earlier today, when you begin with students, uh, when you uh, discuss this subject? Well, as a rule, uh, I just try to establish uh, the... Um, basic premises of, of classical theism that most of them uh, accept to begin with, mm -hmm. uh, which is simply whether they do believe that God is omnipotent, that he creates from nothing, that creation is not something in addition to the divine nature in which God comes to be other than he is, you know, basic things of that sort, and whether then they believe that also, God is the good, you know, in the in the in the in the ultimate and transcendental sense. Usually, uh, I mean, occasionally one will get someone who's an open theist or something of the sort, a process theologian, what have you, uh, in the room, and and that immediately uh, causes a detour of I don't know a week. Uh, to, to try to establish the terms, but once you know, once those questions have been asked, then you start from a very simple question that occurs to everyone, which is simply that: Must it be the case that a, that an omnipotent and, and loving God, who sets the terms of the of the game, so to speak? Uh, can only create on the terms that would allow for, not necessarily require, but would would require the possibility that a certain number of rational natures would suffer eternal dereliction, eternal suffering, annihilation, but principally eternal suffering. The question when it's posed that way, I would argue, uh, answers itself. And at that point, the argument should come to an end. <laughs> what stands before, between uh, the question and the obvious answer uh, are centuries of tradition, of doctrine, and of some incredibly specious arguments made to defend a position that I would argue is not morally intelligible, is not logically coherent, and isn't even biblically warranted, but that has become obviously in the minds of most uh, the orthodoxy. Um, the other thing I'd say about the book before venturing into it is though there's a chapter on scripture, I actually think there's very little to be said once one gets past some certain a certain obvious points about the language of the New Testament, if one gets more um, 
recherche about it, one can go into long disquisitions on the nature of Second Temple Judaism, the origins of Christian thought, the, the language of the, of the prophets with regard to, say, the Valley of Hinnom and so on and so forth, which can be very time-consuming and obviously isn't the issue to be dealt with at the beginning of the book. But that admittedly the principal argument of the book, which is a single argument in seven or eight parts, is a philosophical argument. And just to annoy Thomists, it's a philosophical argument that I routinely claim to be irrefutably true. Um, my reason for saying that is, a, is twofold, One, and, and I've just given both those reasons. One is to annoy to, uh, Thomists. The other is because it happens to be true. It is irrefutably true. This isn't because um, I enjoy any special insight I mean, I think I put the arguments together in the book in a very clever way, maybe too clever, I've discovered from some readers who as yet still um, keep attacking it for what it doesn't say. But uh, on the whole, I think that uh, once one sets aside the feeling that one must believe uh, in in the notion of eternal torment, one discovers that much of what the book says is simply uh, you know, a set of self-evident conclusions um, put together in a particular way in order to create uh, a single continuous dialectical fabric. And the reason for doing that is simply to anticipate and answer all possible objections. Now, as I understood it, this is, this is the first of a series of conversations in the book, so you want to begin at the beginning, right? I do want to begin at the beginning, yes. Um, and it seems to me that your framing of the question in the book and your first meditation go together quite well, so that, you know, addressing both at once is not all that strange. But even before that, I would like to say that we have a problem where people feel that the position you take is the one that should be on the defensive. Yeah. When I would say the opposite, I would say if we really look at the history of doctrine, it is the prevailing doctrine that should be on the defensive because I, it's not there from the beginning of the church and it's really not in scripture unless it's superimposed uh, yeah. by translation. But I, I figure we'll get to that as we go along, but that one of the reasons people can disconnect their minds from what is, I believe you've quite correct, correctly said, a self-evident argument it's because of years and years of training to look at theology from texts and that for the most part, although it's fundamentalists that we say do the proof texting, the truth is it's, it's a habit in most theology, proof texting to some degree. And so that people will not see a self-evident argument because they have had a certain kind of logic imposed into their minds via doctrine. 
So, yeah, I agree. It's self-evident. But how do we clear the cobwebs away, you know, so that people will be able to think clearly? Um, well, let me ask, um, I mean, how many of those present here have actually read the whole book? So, right. Um, I can't actually see the gallery view now. They've got us on speaker view here. Let me. Yeah. Well, Deacon uh, Nicholas Harrelson can see. No, I, I can change it from, I can change it from here. Right. And, and a lot of people haven't actually turned on their cameras anyway. So yeah, um, this is more than a few. <laughs> OK, um, well, uh, and uh, then let me ask uh, more specifically, how many have read the the paperback edition that has the additional preface? Well, I have. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's important just to know where I'm beginning, because the, the preface, to my mind, was an important. I mean, a significant addition uh, to the book just because I found it a good way of, of uh, orienting um, certain certain readers towards the argument of the book in the hope that it would it would uh, somewhat shake them of the habit of starting from the notion that the unassailably well established position is is the one that says there's a you know such a thing as eternal torment whereas the position that must be on the defensive and that therefore in some sense must be counterintuitive or contrary to the to the evidence is the universalism of figures like say gregory of nyssa or macrina or or isaac of nineveh or origin or solomon of basra or diodor of tarsus or theodore of mops westia or you know up to Sergei Bulgakov, whereas, uh, you know, it just seems self-evident to me that, that those figures are all able to enunciate not only a logically cogent theology, but one that, that takes in all of the, the scriptural evidence without equivocation, where it's actually the other one. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, remember, we all love Augustine for his brilliance. Uh, which he died 18 years earlier, but that's, you know, not out of malice, just so that he never had the um, debates with. But, uh, you know, whereas Augustine is obliged again and again and again to explain verses away, like, you know, Romans 5.18 or, or 5.18 to 19 or 1 Corinthians 15.22 or, 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 or all the clearly universal statements in the pastoral epistles and things like that. And so in the, in the preface to the, uh, uh, to the paperback edition, uh, I suppose there are two parts. I mean, uh, apart from my miserably whining and complaining about all the people who've attacked the book without ever actually attacking the arguments it makes, me taking umbrage at this and having a tantrum. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the story I tell, a true story, about a child on the spectrum whose spontaneous reaction to the teaching in itself to me was significant as a strangely dialectical, dialectically lucid argument. Child's horror at the doctrine was one uncorrupted by specious arguments, bad distinctions, long catechesis and indoctrination. And having um, some experience of children on the spectrum. Something else I know is that part of what seems odd about them to others is the extraordinary crystal clarity 
at times with which they make judgments. Um, his reaction, as powerful as it was, uh, was a reaction based on irreproachable logic that he had just been told that the universe, the very foundations of the universe were sheer horror, that the secret behind the curtain was something so monstrously unimaginable that it made life itself seem like a, like a prison sentence. And that his parents very wisely were more concerned with him than with uh, the catechism and ended up leaving the church. Uh, I don't know where, what their status is now. But they knew that he could not emotionally survive the dissonance of this obscene lie, which is what it is. But that simply is, I'm trying to make a point there that, that some things are so clear that they should be obvious. And the only reason that they're not obvious is we've been taught not to see them. Mm -hmm. Then another point, another point in the preface though, is simply that, that the doctrine of hell as, uh, if actually embraced as a belief concerning my personal destiny, before we get on to the actual logical arguments of the book, is of necessity a belief that renders impossible the cardinal Christian demand that we love God with all our hearts, minds, and strength, and that we love our neighbors ourselves. Now, when I say that it's impossible, I don't mean that it's impossible. I don't mean just emotionally it's impossible to love a God capable of allowing a rational nature to suffer eternally, though I believe that's true. I believe that no one who believes that truly loves God with all his heart, strength, and mind, and will. But I mean, strictly logically speaking, you cannot love your neighbor as yourself on those terms. Not because you're necessarily willing to see your neighbor damned or want to see him damned or her, but because you can contemplate the possibility that you will enter into eternal beatitude and he or she will enter into eternal torment and, and believe that your own joy, your own delectation of the divine essence or whatever would be in no way diminished by the knowledge or no, in no way diminished by fact, which means that proleptically you've already consigned that, that person to the worst imaginable fate in your heart without remorse. There may be a little regret, but you've been able to contemplate. If you believe that, you know, if you say just risk the life of your child, believing that it's for an end that will make you perfectly happy even if the child is killed, okay, then you cannot love your child as a parent should love a, a child. Similarly, you cannot love your neighbor on those terms. Now, these may seem like very infantile arguments if you state them too quickly. The problem is if you think about them deeply, you'll find they're absolutely solvent. You can't get around them. Uh, and so I put that in the preface. I won't go on with the rest of the preface, but I mean, I put those in the preface in the hope precisely of trying to get people to approach the book with uh, a somewhat open mind as to who and uh, who in this argument actually 
should be somewhat uncertain of and maybe even ashamed of what he or she's saying. Well, I, I would even take it a little further. Um, I would say, isn't it possible that the, isn't it likely that the acceptance by Christians of the willingness to be cruel and uncharitable, to accept wars that they, they call just wars, but that are unjust, et cetera, all of these things, uh, would not really be possible if we all understood and attained to the vir virtue of charity. How can we possibly attain to the virtue of charity if we're willing to see ourselves as inheriting this wonderful bliss and joy while everyone else is suffering forever? I don't see any way that that, that is possible, but I also wonder how much our acceptance of of cruelty that you see as part of church history. I mean, the burning of heretics, the you know, crazy things like that, Christians going to war against each other, all of these things. Somewhere, isn't it possible that the psychology of infernalism has a lot to do with that, but has made us able to be so hateful for God. Well, I think though, I mean, I, I, since I started with the preface, I guess we'll start with, with psychological things, I mean, psychological questions first before getting the larger. I think that's obviously true. I think it's also true though, and this is a very small minority, but it, nonetheless, I've met them. I know them personally. There are those for whom the cruelty is deeply appealing. That is very much at the heart of their faith. And in a sense, that is, of course, the teaching of Thomas following the Lombard is when he says that the, the sufferings of the damned will increase the beatitude of the saved, of the, of the blessed. Uh, he means that, you know, because, of course, you know, Thomas believed that the, uh, the um, uh, scientia vespertina, the knowledge of the divine essence in the beatific vision, which is, uh, is, is, becomes sort of like a scientia matutina, that is knowing it, things directly in, you know, morning knowledge, that is knowing things in the divine essence as opposed to knowing them uh, uh, through acquaintance, through an empirical experience, but knowing them directly in the divine essence, which would be, convey, would be uh, imparted by the beatific vision, would make it impossible that, that the blessed not know uh, of, of all these things. And that, uh, you know, and that therefore they must, since there can be no shadow of regret in heaven, they must conduce to greater beatitude. But what his argument is, of course, by contrast to their own state, but of course, that's the same thing, isn't it? I mean, that is, that's what sadism is. It's, enjoying the sufferings of others because one is not oneself experiencing them. Uh, there's no Holy real... schadenfreude. <laughs> schadenfreude, yeah. It's easy to believe that for him uh, because he has to. It's impossible to believe it if you don't have to. Um, 
and so yeah, no, I think I think that the doctrine has abetted cruelty. I think I mean again, read Thomas's defense of burning heretics, of killing heretics. It's chilling. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not a great fan of Thomas. I have to admit, uh, he's great, great, a great metaphysical mind. Obviously, I think he was a dreadful theologian, uh, fine philosopher, uh, but but a uh, worshiper of an altogether hideous picture of God. But even if I were wrong about that, I think we can all agree that the you know the bit about the sufferings of the damned increasing the beatitude of the of the blessed should make us step back a little bit from the text. I can't tell you, though, how many Thomists I know who defend it, <laughs> because Thomists can do no wrong. Anyway, that's the preface of the book. If we're just talking about the, the, the um, can I just lay out uh, the, the opening questions of the book before one gets to meditation one? Yes. Whatever you. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I thought I could do that, and then um, if there are any questions about it, I could field them. Okay. Um, I mean, there are just two basic questions in those early chapters before the, the, the uh, four meditations. The first is Can the God who either imposes or permits a state of perpetual conscious torment for rational creatures really be uh, not merely good, but the good in itself? Second, could finite creatures possessed of real freedom? And that's a question that's dealt with in Meditation 4. So, uh, off, actually freely reject God eternally and by the exercise of that liberty merit, merit perpetual torment or achieve perpetual torment. Merit is, is an object. And the answer to both questions is no. Uh, it seems to me other questions of equal importer addressed there, but but uh, those are the two that start the, the argument rolling. Now, the first of those, which subtends the whole text, is also a question of analogy, because, you know, we, we have it from Scripture that we're allowed to speak of God in analogical terms. We're allowed to draw analogies from this world to God of a limited sort, but of a fairly significant kind. Christ says to his disciples, if you want to understand the fatherhood of God, then start with your own experience of fatherhood and understand that he is superior to you as a father in those terms. So the question of analogy is the question of whether theological language has any intelligible content at all. And if so, there has to be a real continuity between the language we use in regard to creatures and regard to God. Um, now, I mean, this doesn't deny the apophatic limits on knowledge. You know, we're not allowed, we are not able to comprehend God's infinity and all that. But the logic of apophaticism still requires that words retain some kind of consistency of meaning in passing from the creaturely to the divine realms of reference, even if the lat in the latter case, the full truth of the word somewhat surpasses what we're able to understand. They can't contradict it. Because if our theological claims oblige us to use words in a way that the, in a way that makes the creaturely and divine meanings antithetical to one another, then of course the predicates become equivocal and so meaningless. And at this, as soon as this happens, something I call a contagion of equivocity is inaugurated. Because ultimately, if that much, if if, if your words can be that far short, if our analogies are that utterly disproportionate. 
to the truth of God's love, then that must mean that all Christian language is semantically and syntactically vacuous. And if you don't point that out at the outset, for some reason people don't get it. Uh, you know, some people will beat a retreat immediately to inscrutable divine sovereignty as the only valid divine predicate. So we can't presume to judge God's actions. Uh, but there's a self-defeating logic there at work. I mean, quite apart from, you know, I, I won't go into the history of voluntarism and how logically incoherent it is to, to introduce a kind of arbitrary will into God. But again, this contagion of equivocity is a problem you cannot get around. To claim that the whole drama of election and dereliction is undertaken by God as a display of glory is simply to evacuate glory of moral content. And at that point, faith is just pure epistemic nihilism. It's Actually, not. it gives me some hope because it seems to me that what you're describing is a learned behavior. Oh, yeah. That, you know, when you talk about the child who automatically reacted, that what we're combating here and that kind of thing is that people train themselves to do this mentally. It is not natural to the mind. At least that doesn't seem to me that it would be. accidentally muted myself there for a moment. It's not natural to the mind. It's also not natural to language, <laughs> assuming language, you know, I mean, I guess if we were arch materialists like Daniel Dennett, we could say all intentionality in language is illusory anyway, but I'm assuming that most of us here believe that language actually means something. Uh, if we, if we follow that line to its end, we don't, we can't even come up with reasons for believing anything to begin with. And we certainly can't find a concept of justice or love or goodness or mercy that can successfully span the ontological gap between divine and creaturely if the premise of an eternal hell is accepted. On the one hand, the concept of justice, for instance, entails a sane proportionality between punishment and culpability. And then on the other, we're instructed by tradition to believe that the sort of finite offenses of which creatures are capable, hindered as they are by mental competency, intentionality, power, justly merit an eternal and absolute punishment. That's a contradiction. The issue here is not some presumptuous attempt to hold God accountable to our standards. It's the recognition that the very notion of justice becomes incorrigibly equivocal and therefore meaningless if we're able to ask to accept the, 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 that standard account. Um, so anyway, that's just at that point, the real argument of the book hasn't begun and that just lays the groundwork, but that's always usually a good place to pause just in case someone has a question about it. Actually, if people have questions, they can push the little button on raising their hands or if anyone in the room here has a question, they can raise their hand and I'll see it. But uh, so, you know, I don't, we can pause for a minute if you want to and see if anyone oh, has any questions before you go on. No, I mean, I think it's self-evident. I only, I only get arguments. I just want to hear what you have to say. So go on. <laughs> well, I only get arguments on that point from Calvinists. So, I mean, I, they're the only ones who have, even the Thomists are, are bound by 
tradition to believe that there is such a thing as an intelligible analogy. Now, they'll claim I'm exaggerating it. That is, that the analogy of fatherhood shouldn't be taken so far as actually to mean anything vaguely reminiscent of paternal love. You know, I've, I've had that argument made simply that I'm overextending the analogy, but I, I would protest it, not I, but Jesus, you know, he's the one who made the analogy. And, you know, it, it, the terms seem pretty clear, you know, scorpions and, and rocks are, 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 are not uh, good substitutes for, for nourishment for your children. All right. So I guess then in the time remaining, which because it's Valentine's Day is only you know, so long for me. Um, I might as well just go and then just lay out meditation one and stop there. All right, because that's, that's the foundation of the whole book. And it's, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, it, it, I have to say in advance, I admit it's the most difficult part of the book with perhaps the exception of certain parts of meditation for. Uh, and one mistake that's made over and over and over again is that meditation one has something to do with the problem of evil. That is, why is there evil? Why does God permit evil? Which is not, not the issue at all. The, the question of evil is never raised meditation one I've written about it elsewhere but it has no has no uh, significance here the question here is one of moral modal logic that is whether or not uh, it is possible to maintain as tradition does that God being the good never wills evil in itself but can will evil whether a natural or a moral evil only permissively uh, under some sort of double effect logic that says that, that evil will be permitted for a greater good. Whether that distinction between will and permission, or as the tradition also has it, between God's antecedent decree that all shall enjoy the, the eternal bliss and his consequent decree that those he elects will do so, or any number of other distinctions of that sort can be logically maintained if you accept both the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo and uh, the, uh, the 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 doctrine of of divine impeccable omnipotence, because at the eschatological horizon, which is the final cause of God's creation, uniquely in the case of God because of his not being obliged to create, because creation is on his terms, because he is omnipotent, omniscient, what have you, uh, and his being in itself, and if you're going to be a good Thomist about it, has it within his power to extend efficacious grace in such a way that all are saved. Know this, in Thomism, God could save all. He just chooses not to without violating their freedom. That if you accept that uniquely in the case of God, there is a modal collapse of any distinction between will and permission, and there must be. Uh, or I call it a moral modal collapse at the eschatological horizon. 
Um, and this, this means that at that point, you can't make any distinction between the primary and secondary effects of the divine volition. And the problem this leads to is that according also to traditional Christian thought, God cannot will only a relative good, because a relative good is also a relative evil. And being the God who creates ex nihilo, what is revealed in the ultimate state of the intentionality of God in creating is nothing less than the character of God, which also cannot be relatively evil. There are three cardinal tenets here to keep in mind, and they can't all be true at the same time. Uh, that God freely created all things out of nothingness, that God is the good itself, and that it is certain or at least possible that some rational creatures will endure eternal loss of God. You can accept any two of those in tandem. You cannot put them all three together without creating uh, a, 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 an irreparable contradiction. If God creates the world from nothingness, under no compulsion, with no motive but the overflow of infinite goodness, it's only in the finished reality of all things that the full nature of that activity is revealed. But as I say, what will be disclosed cannot be only the nature of creation then, but has to test, touch upon the divine nature as well. If it's true that creation in no sense adds to, qualifies, or perfects God, and if you believe it does, then even then there's a problem as to what, it, what a monster it makes of the God thus perfected. But if that is the God who creates from nothing is all, always already the infinite God who doesn't require and isn't susceptible to any process of becoming, nothing proper to creation is beyond his power and intention. Okay. Inasmuch as creation isn't a process of theogony, of God becoming God, it has to reveal something of who God is in himself. So while it's true that creation doesn't modify or qualify God, much less determine him, for that very reason, being as it's entirely determined by him and is totally dependent upon God's will, the final reality of creation necessarily reveals God for who he, he is in himself. Any intentional act not conditional upon a prior or more ultimate necessity is a revelation of the moral identity of the intending agent. I mean, it uses even at the level of the finite. Now, I don't think of God as some great deliberating fellow up there thinking, oh, am I going to create or not? But let's put it in, in simple human terms. If, uh, you know, something you do in pursuit of a good end eventuates Contracur, but even if you knew it was so, uh, in the death of an innocent person, that fact doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily disclose much about who you are. But if you kill someone because you have freely chosen an end that is not necessary, knowing that as part of that ultimate design there was even the possibility that that person might die, then that fact tells everything there is to tell about who you are. And then remember that 
according to any, both to any logical evaluation of of the good of of creatures and the good of rational creatures, but also to fairly strong statements in Scripture, like Matthew eighteen fourteen or First Timothy two four or Second Peter three nine. Uh, there it says that the eternal loss of a living spirit is a natural evil because it's contrary to the will of God. Anything contrary to the will of God is, by definition, definition a natural evil. A natural evil becomes moral, becomes a moral evil to the very degree that it is directly intended by a willing agent. And so you have to ask, as I say, this is a somewhat complicated argument, but Given the metaphysics of creatio ex nihilo, given the metaphysics of divine transcendence, given the language of scripture regarding the will of God, there is no logical room for making a moral distinction between what God directly intends in creation and what God merely allows to happen. At that final limit, will and permission necessarily become indistinguishable. They are modally, morally the same. That is not to say they are necessarily necessarily the same in every other sense, but morally they're equivalent. It's also, remember, a logical truism that all secondary causes in creation are reducible to their first cause. Now, that's not to say that all, all secondary things that, you know, whether I choose to go to the dentist or not is something that necessarily is causally predetermined by God, but it does mean that no possibility exists within the consequence of God's creative act that are not already enfolded within the possibilities, right, in that original act. Nothing can appear within the consequence of God's creative act that is not, at least as a potential result, implicit in their antecedent, in the primordial work of God. So even if God allows only for the mere possibility of an ultimately unredeemed natural evil in creation. In the very act of creation, he elected this reality or this real possibility as an acceptable price for the ends he desired. In acting freely, all the possibilities to which an agent knowingly consents are positively willed as intrinsic conditions of the end to be achieved. Again, if I freely, knowingly choose a course of action that may involve the death of my child, Knowing that that death will then be an ineradicable detail of the pattern of what I bring about morally, I've willed his death within the total calculus of my final intentions, as a cost freely accepted, even if the ends, of the, even if in the end he doesn't die. You cannot positively will the whole without positively willing all the necessary parts of the whole, even if those parts exist only in potential or full or in fully actual states, whether or not that is. And God, the good who wills only the good, cannot will the good of the whole without willing that it be wholly good. Were he to will only a partial good, he would also be positively willing a partial evil. And so if God does indeed tolerate that final unredeemed natural evil as the price of creation, he not only thereby reduces the goodness of the creative act to a merely relative goodness, he converts that natural evil into a moral evil. He is evil, one wholly enfolded within the total calculus of the venture of creating. He reveals himself to be not God, not the good as such, but only a God who is at most relatively good. 
So the last way I play this out, I mean, it's it's what's often called game choice theory. That in such a final state of things, the damned would in some real sense then be the saviors of the elect, or at least their redeemers, the sacrificial victims whose eternal suffering is part of the stochastic or aleatory or game decision cost accepted by God for the felicity of the blessed. Or whether the damned are predetermined to their reprobation or merely carried there by unpredictable forces, they, more than Christ now, are the true lambs slain from the foundation of the world, the sacrifice made in the eternal divine councils, the ransom eternally ordained by God, the blood eternally spilled so the kingdom could be founded. They are what God is willing either by degree, by decree or permission to forfeit. And after all, if this is how the game must be played in order for anyone to win at it, the losing lot might just as well have fallen to those who are now the redeemed. So anyway, that, plus a long excursive, excursus on what I've already talked about, the, the contagion of, of aquavocity, constitutes pretty much the substance of the argument of meditation one. I don't know if I made it any clearer or if I just made if I just repeated the same complications over and over again. Um, but to be honest, actually, um, I see that over at Eclectic Orthodoxy, Alvin Kimmel's page, um, Tom Belt just put out an article on that that moral argument as well. So that might also help clarify it. But to my mind, the problem is I, I, I ever since making that argument in 2015. Um, I've received not a single, not only not a single good refutation or attempted a refutation. I haven't even accept, I haven't even yet seen someone who disagrees with it state the argument correctly. To the point that uh, after eight years, I've just decided to give up on the hope. I'll also say this. There was one fellow, uh, Thomas, who wrote in Modern Theology recently named Wahlberg, who did, a try, did try to address it. Um, he didn't quite get it right. His answer was very poor. But what, what, what was kind of shocking about it was not so much the poverty of, of his argument at, at the dialectical level. It wasn't very good. I mean, it was just, it was a bad philosophical argument. It was the moral poverty of it. He was willing to say that, you know, on those, you know, it, it surely it's worthwhile that one should uh, be unconcerned with the eternal sufferings of a certain number of rational souls if uh, this allows for what good God does achieve in creation, such as creating this person or that person. Now, this is odd for a Thomas, for, for a Thomas scholar, or let alone a Thomist, to argue, because um, Thomism says that you cannot do anything, you, you cannot uh, visit an injustice on non-existent persons. 
you can't you're not doing anyone uh, you're not hurting anyone by not creating it, it, uh, it makes me think of a 17th century joke in England uh, to thank God for all the evil that the king neglected to do. And it sounds like we're thanking God for all the evil that God neglected to do uh, to say, you know, whatever yeah. good. He well, the problem is, is, is that <laughs> the, the whole point of the game choice theory was the point out that the terms of this game are not set by us begin with okay there, there is actually no necessity i mean even Thomism insists uh, you know given the classical understanding of rational freedom it lies within the power and discretion of god to uh to save all souls without violating freedom and again i said we'll get to the issue of freedom some other night but that's the curious thing is that uh uh is that Thomas's own metaphysics tend to contradict his theological and the, the and the claims of the of of the Thomas school. The difference is, is that Thomas was not did not deceive himself. Uh, the modern Thomas has sort of adopted the kind of C.S. Lewis notion that damnation is is a free resistance to God, freely chosen, and therefore God simply doesn't violate because out of his precious concern for his autonomy, much in the way you would allow your child to cut off his fingers with sacateurs uh, if he wanted to do so because you wouldn't want to violate his autonomy. I'm sure you would all do that. But the, the real problem is that um, uh, according to Thomas's own metaphysics, that doesn't make sense. Uh, but with Thomas, the issue is, of course, he, he simply adopted the late Augustinian account of grace and nature, which in the later Thomas school gave rise to the, the later theology of nature and supernature, which is equally unsustainable. But, you know, the, the Augustine's notorious misreading of Paul. Uh, for Thomas, uh, Christ's death produces sufficient grace for the salvation of all, but only by the uh, predestining will of God is anyone capable of receiving efficacious grace, which is all that can save. And that is given antiprivisa merita. It's not based on any goods that the creature, uh, you know, it does not crown the merits of the creature, as Augustine would put it. Uh, and God thereby, you know, they, they resist the language of double predestination. The actual, the Thomas school uh, term is that they God infallibly, permissively decrees the damnation of most. Uh, it's a purely predestinarian system, but modern Thomists don't like, some of them do, but those who don't have tried to mix Thomas's metaphysics with this sort of free will defense of hell, which is just sheer, sheer incoherence. But anyway, that's, I'll stop there for now. That's the, the, the heart of the moral argument based on decision theory and on a unique, on the unique status uh, among, uh, in the realm of agency of creatio ex nihilo as precipitating necessarily a moral modal collapse at the eschatological horizon. Um, I uh, obviously, of course, this was driven home by Gregory of Nyssa, and yeah. we need to remember two things about him. One, he obviously read the scripture in the original language and knew it, 
and do it as well as anybody could. And he is also one of the people who helped give us the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed that we say, you know, all of us, whether oh, it's divine it, liturgy, yeah, it, mass, holy communion. It, it, is, um, it is something and of an embarrassment for some. Again, this will get back to why I say that we're not the ones, those of us who believe in universalism, are not the ones who should feel on the defensive because we say that creed, <laughs> uh, and we say it summarizes our faith. By the way, it says nothing about eternal punishment in that creed, is it? No, I just want to just just make a point of emphasis there. All right, okay. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would also, if I could prove it, I mean, I think also, of course, that this is true. The, the, the greatest defenders of the Nicene synthesis and the, the founders of the of actually Chalcedonian Christology or the Cappadocian Fathers, they're actually responsible for both uh, in the sense that, that, that from the contra eunomium onward, you know, uh, the theology of Nicaea was progressively enriched and uh, defended by the, by the Cappadocians and the groundwork for what is considered orthodox Christology was laid. It does create something of a historical dilemma, not only that the greatest mind among them, Gregory of Nyssa, was, was so forthright a universalist, but that almost certainly so was Gregory of Nazianzus. Basil doesn't get on the list because of one sentence in the regula, which is attributed to him, but of course, it's almost certain he didn't write it. Regula is a rule for, uh, for uh, monastic life that by the time we get a hold of it has been written and rewritten and written over by so many different hands that we don't know who the author of what parts of it are. But the one argument that's made supposedly in it against uh, universalism does not read like Basil. It doesn't, you know, it lacks both his intelligence and his eloquence. It is probably the case that they were all, and we know they were all, and so was Macrina, and so was Gregory Thaumaturgus, and Didymus the Blind, and all, all very, you know, very deep <laughs> readers of origin and of his school, and I would not be surprised. To say, I mean, I think, again, we know that the, the all the others I've mentioned other than Basil were universalists. So it is one of the curiosities of church history that the entire Nicene, Constantinopolitan, and ultimately Chalcedonian and Neo-Chalcedonian synthesis is based on the work of, of a generation of extraordinary and most certainly universalist Christian theologians. Yes, that's all the reason why we should just feel so defensive. <laughs> uh, does anyone have a question at this point? Or maybe everybody's so keen on what you've said that they, they don't. Oh, I Again, hope so. I have questions uh, or even a challenging question. I think my brother's up to it. Uh, I want to remind anyone who tuned in recently that my name is not Diane. I'm using my wife's computer. Uh, any rate, is there actually his name is Diane, but he, he for some reason feels he yeah. has to deny it. Um, so he was originally supposed to be named Cindy, but then when he was born, 
And they looked at him and said, no, this is a Diane. <laughs> no, all right. So, what? 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 Did, uh, were you going to pose a question, or is there one, or am I? Uh, have I made myself sufficiently obscure that no one knows what to ask? Well, unless I see a hand raised, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go on with something that I want to. Just there is a hand raised. Okay, let's let's go with it. Okay. Hello, everybody. And uh, thank you, Dr. Hart. I, I'm a huge fan of yours. Um, I've, I've read your, you've brought in Dostoevsky many times and talking about how like, if the suffering and death of a, even one child happens, it's, it's not worth the salvation of the entire human race. Well, that's the argument of Ivan, yeah. Yeah, and I, I find it to be also one of those arguments that you really can't beat. But I, I have to confess that it leaves me uneasy um, because it seems like that's the reality, that God does allow a whole lot of suffering in the world in order for him to, in the end, save everybody, you know? So, I mean... Well, I mean, the problem is that, of course, as you know, I don't actually think that the answer in the book is given by uh, Father Zotsima. I think that's a, a misreading. And in fact... Uh, when that part of the book came out, you know, the, the, the Brothers Karamazov was published in installments. It was pointed out that Zotsima's answer still didn't seem equal to the power of, uh, of Ivan's complaint. In, in, in what I've written about the book, not in The Doors of the Sea, but elsewhere, an essay called The Devil's March, it's actually Vanya's uh, argument with the devil when he has uh, meningeal fever uh, that, that is where, where you get an answer that's oddly uh, like Vladimir Solovyev. Uh, and as we know that uh, Dostoevsky was drawing him, uh, that, that it is ultimately this promise that somehow that if Christianity is true somehow, uh, the deification of that girl is such that she herself can forgive and redeem those who tormented her and that somehow. You know, the end prescribes our judgments of the beginning. There is a certain kind of, you know, and this is unsatisfactory, but there is a, there is a kind of traditional patristic metaphysics in that as well that you find in Maximus that in a sense God creates everything in its last end and so that from you know subspatiae aeternitatis that little girl is already God in God forgiving and reaching out to redeem those who harmed her but it remains a powerful argument to the end the only thing I want to point out is that it's totally unrelated to the argument I make in this book Again and again, I see meditation one misconstrued as a, as a wrestling with the problem of evil. It isn't. The problem of evil I'm willing to leave as a mystery for now on, simply on the premise that it is logically possible to imagine. doesn't mean that emotionally, morally, temperamentally I know how to do it, but it is logically possible to imagine that any transient evil really can be redeemed, reversed, corrected, undone, made new. All things can be made new. 
by a final and pervasive good. But it is logically impossible to say the same in, in, in regard to the, the ultimate ends of creation as unfolded within the divine will, if that encompasses an unending and unredeemed. I mean, you know, you say, well, redeemed for the, the greater good. Any argument from the greater good falls apart if this moral mode of collapse is, as I say it is, it requires the positive willing of a natural evil, the part of God. And uh, so, I mean, all I'd say here is that the two arguments concern two different issues. The only thing I'm saying in the book is that the infernalist story is logically incoherent, morally incoherent, spiritually deadening cannot be true. That in itself, though, does not solve the problem of evil, which is a completely different set of issues. And you're right, Ivan, Ivan's, you know, they're also, you know, they're, but as regards hell, you know, if you want to extend that story of the little girl into the context of an eternal judgment on a final state of things that actually, if, if it's extended into eternal, then that suffering becomes part of the foundation of, of the kingdom rather than the thing that the kingdom overcomes. There is, of course, the Henry, the, the, sorry, not the Henry, the William James quotation that I'm fond of, you know, if we were to imagine that in some far off place, one soul suffered misery, you know, so that we could enjoy total beatitude, would we not think that there was something corrupt and evil in this bargain, which polluted its happiness? There's also that, um, you know, rather famous Ursula K. Le Guin story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. You can extend Yvonne's argument past the problem of evil into the problem, you know, of hell, that is. And at that point, it becomes incredibly solvent of the teach. And in fact, if you remember, Yvonne is a universalist. That is not necessarily they really believe in God. But he's, start, he's late 19th century Russian intellectual, so he starts, he says, of course, that's all taken care of. There will be ultimate reconciliation. Those who, who tormented the little girl will seek down, will kneel and seek and be forgiven and, all, and the kingdom of heaven. So actually, Yvonne starts from a universalist pre, uh, premise. So, you know, if you actually to extend it into eternity, then his argument would become absolute. So in that sense, it is relevant to this, but it is in and of itself a different a different issue. It seems to me that what you're really saying is really driven home on pages 89 and 90. If Christians did not proclaim an, a, cre, a creatio ex nihilo, if they thought God of being limited by some external principle or internal imperfection, or if they were dualists or dialectical idealists or what have you, the question of evil would be an ideological query for them, not a terrible moral conundrum. But because they say God creates freely, they must believe that his final judgment shall reveal him for who he is. And if I may borrow a C.S. Lewis term, it's as if you know God's in the dock himself in a sense, and that the final judgment really just shows I mean, this is what you're saying. It shows for him for who he is, and yeah. that that this is a matter of knowing well, that, 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 that revealed himself. That's the notion. Christ. 
that's the nature uh, of a, of, as opposed of a, to the question began the question of evil uh i'm thinking of gratio ex nihilo in terms of eschatology as you drive it home from gregory of nyssa i'm thinking of a painter you know who can look at a canvas there's no point in judging the picture until he's finished it looks like a mess at times you know yeah although i mean obviously the problem of evil is more difficult than that for the simple yeah, fact right. that the canvas can't suffer and a little girl can. But um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, there, there is, uh, as I say, it's uniquely the case that in regard to the eschatological shape of things that, that this collapse in moral modality occurs uniquely. I mean, it can't, it can't occur uh, in medius race, but... I mean, there. You know, you know. I, I don't want people to think that. Uh, first of all, I don't want people to confuse the two things. I don't want the problem of evil and the issue I'm dealing with there to be confused with one another. But I also wouldn't want them to think that, therefore, uh, you know, that that, that uh, the problem of evil is somehow solved in just in summing things up. Uh, making the claim of universalism, you still have to, you know, you still, you still are allowed to wrestle with that uh, and, and think about it in a number of other ways. Uh, yes, Lazarus Connolly, you have a question? Well, it's kind of a comment, maybe, but like, um, like when y'all were talking about the theodicy, like the problem of evil, like. I mean, I've read like Levinson and some of them, and they always say like it's solved by the eschatologically, it's solved by the second, well, solved by in the Judaism, it's God's coming, but Christianity, it's you know the second coming and resurrection of the dead solves the theodicy, right? So, um, I like I, I read your book, Professor Hart, and I really loved it, by the way. Um, but um, like. I always think of Metropolitan Hilarion uh, Alfeyev. I don't know if I said that right, but Alfeyev. Yeah, yeah. Um, like because he talks about all these hymns that it says Christ emptied all of hell, right? Yeah. And I always think to myself, like, okay, like I, I thought your argument about like Aeon and Aeon, Aeon, I can't say stuff right, but <laughs> but uh, I'm Texan, so forgive me. <laughs> but um, uh. I, uh, I, I actually like Texans in general. Can't say I'm crazy about your governor, but you know. Yeah, same here. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, so so um, Alfeo, he talks about you know Christ, Christ emptied hell when he descended, you know, and I'm like, well, that doesn't like it doesn't to me anyways personally like it doesn't add up to me when it says like when somebody's trying to say like oh there's an eternal hell. After he's just emptied hell in the from the old testament and stuff, you know, like I, I well, was just interested in your thoughts on that. I mean, first of all, make make a distinction there. Um, it was talking there about the emptying of Hades, right? This is the notion. Now that itself is based on a number of texts that are probably quite often talking about something slightly different, but that's a, that's an exegetical issue. Yeah. The emptying of Hades, the realm of the dead, uh, which wouldn't have been conflated in the mind of early Christians 
with but but the idea of an eternal hell the Gehenna is a place of eternal torment uh, I would argue isn't there at all in the Bible I mean the, the, that's not what the references to the Gehenna are about they really are straightforward borrowings from Isaiah and Jeremiah and are references to the destruction of of living human beings uh, you know in a in a in a in a coming calamity uh, histor in the, within the historical horizon, but um, but it was the case that you're right in Byzantine tradition. One of the uh, uh, and you see this in Gregory of Nyssa in the Oratio Catechetica, the great the great oration, the catechetical oration, is that he sees the overthrow. He doesn't have a separate concept of you know, the realm of death and some place of eternal torment. He doesn't think that there. I mean, he doesn't think in that way at all. There's the fire of salvation, the fire that uh, that uh, uh, cleanses. You know, the fire of First Corinthians chapter three. That's the only eschatological fire Gregory has in his mind. Mm-hmm. For him, in the Oratio Catechetic, he makes it. He says, states it very clearly that 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 you know that the triumph has to be total, Christ. Uh, and that all who were in the kingdom of death, the kingdom of the devil, all that have been set free, both in the past and in the future. Uh, and even the devil himself has benefited from it. You know, this is the famous fish hook metaphor, you know, that, that the divinity, <laughs> it is, it's, it's, it's an old argument who had the, had the clumsier metaphor for this. With, with Augustine, it was a mouse trap. With, uh, with, um, Gregory, it was a fish hook that you know the divinity of Christ was sort of like a fish hook hidden in the in the flesh of Christ. So the devil, the death, hell, Hades swallowed the fish, thinking it was getting a good meal, and instead being harrowed instead by the, by the divine nature. But whatever the case, this is I mean this is part of the when you see that language that that uh, Archbishop Hilarion points to. Who, by the way, whose soul may have been redeemed recently because he was kicked off mm-hmm. all his important assignments in the Russian Orthodox Church, so maybe he's not a Putinista. Uh, but uh, he is right that all of this language in the liturgy is there too. Uh, you know, there's language of hell. There's, a, you know, there's there are all sorts of there are all sorts of threatening, uh, dread warnings. All, but there's also this language of the complete spoliation of of the kingdom of death the kingdom of the devil and the total overthrow total triumph and um, uh, there's a very good article on this by a friend of mine George Dimakopoulos that's how you have to pronounce it by the way because because he's from the deep south it's George Dimakopoulos um, and uh, is a very fine scholar at Fordham uh, on the uh, and he, he has a very good article on you know the, the lamentations for Good Friday, maybe the most beautiful part of the whole Byzantine liturgical tradition, and how strong the statements are and, and what they imply. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question or if I'm just oh, yes, your comment with a comment. Oh no, you you answered it. You're good. <laughs> Thank you. So, there a question being asked by one Ted Saad. Do you see that? Yep. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Hart, I'm just wondering, how would you how would you reconcile this with sort of a I'm going to wear my perennials hat here and uh, 
Uh, I know you've engaged a lot with uh, people from more the uh, uh, Eastern Advaita uh, camp, uh, which obviously well, they don't. The, the Vishishta Advaita is uh, my, my, most of my friends are actually Ramanuja scholars these days, but yeah, go on. So I'm interested in that in a sense uh, that, you know, there isn't really the notion of hell as we would have in more Christian theology, but there is this notion of uh, the human being achieving some kind of realization uh, in this lifetime. And if not achieving that, there's some kind of karmic debt that needs to be paid either through reincarnation yeah. or, or, or something of that sort. How, how would you, uh, how would that notion of us being saved come from that worldview uh, in, in the way that you're sort of unpacking it in, in your... Well, the, the whole notion of, of uh, Unabhava re-becoming, you know, because it's not, it doesn't, they don't, you have to be careful. If you're, if you're really speaking of Vedanta, um, you, you mustn't think that there's, a, there's some notion of a reincarnation of the finite psychological identity, right? Instead, now putting Buddhism aside altogether, because there, of course, is profound. Even even in Yogacara, there's a profound deconstruction of the of the psychological subject uh, at every level. But even in in Advaita, the thing is, yeah, there's a karmic a karmically sustained self that has to be purified. Still, well, I mean, that's not. I mean, there's the same intuition there, really, the right that you find in Gregory. And in origin and in Clement and in, you know Isaac of Nineveh the, that they get from first Corinthians chapter three that 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 uh, you know beyond this life uh, the, the the process of purification and and, uh, and regeneration goes on um, you know uh, that that uh, that there no there's no free lunch so to speak you know they um, uh, you know, Sergei Bulgakov, for instance, uh, claimed that there are as many different heavens and hells as there are rational natures, persons, you know, that in each of us there, there's, you know, both heaven and hell until hell is no more, you know, in varying degrees, and he meant in this life and beyond, that there's this constant process of deification and that, uh, the, you know, so I mean, I, I'm not quite sure what else you were asking. I mean, that, to me, that would just be the you know another, you know, the, the intuition. And now, I mean, you know that in there are Vedantic traditions like Madhva, right, which pick up on um, something that, that Krishna says in in uh, the Bhagavad Gita about those who are so evil that they're sent into incarnation again and again and again and again and never get out. But even for them, that's only true within one world cycle. You know, there's still the pralaya. Sooner or later, even their suffering ends. And they, they, they can be uh, taken back into God. So there is, uh, yeah, you're right, in its, in its developed forms. Uh, I, I mean, I see it as... Uh, you know, confirmation that the moral intelligence of of of, uh, of theology requires the notion that God, uh, you know, God is never done with a soul until it has passed beyond what binds it to death and illusion and cruelty. It's like the man who ran from the uh, 
revivalist meeting into a Buddhist temple. He was so excited. He said, I've been born again. And they offered their condolences. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's the problem, of course, is that American Buddhists tend to think that this whole notion of Punabhava, of, of re-becoming, is good news because they think they're going to come back again as wealthy Californians. You know, and so it's just going to be, <laughs> I can't wait to see what the fashions are in 3072, you know, it's like <laughs> only, only Americans could turn Buddhism into an optimistic, happy sort of uh, vision of, of, of things. But anyway, I mean, it can be a peaceful and love it and compassionate vision of things, but it certainly isn't, uh, you know, it isn't supposed to make you cheerful to think of it. So, you know, we're getting near the 90 minute mark. It is Valentine's Day and I'm a married man with other responsibilities. So if I wrap up, I don't know how long you were planning for this to last night. I find well, 90 minutes is usually enough. I think we can pick it up again on Thursday at the same time. And again, there'll be people who will hear this who were not able to participate because it will be broadcast a uh, podcast uh, on right. the Sacramentalists right. Right. and the uh, I'm not sure the timing on that, but it will be. And we will, of course, have it available at the St. Benedict's YouTube channel where my sermons are posted or Deacon Harrelson's sermons or Archbishop Haverland's sermons when he's here. So, but for now, I'd say if we can pick it up again on Friday, there are, of course, more questions. Thursday or Friday. This subject is by no means exhausted. And I hope people are reading the book or have read it. Uh, that all shall be saved. I, th I think it's marvelous how within about uh, uh, 209 pages, you perfectly well destroy the 1,400-page tome, but we won't get into that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm gratified that you say so. <laughs> I'm All sorry right, well, I kicked you back in January of 1965. Yes, that's right. You did. And um, mm. our mother laughed, laughed out loud because she thought it was so amusing and it tickled her. You, All right. Uh, well, yeah, for those who didn't hear the story earlier, I was still in the womb at the time. So That's right. He, he uh, wasn't responsible for his actions. <laughs> I, 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 I only made my official debut uh, a month later, so. February 20th. Yes, your birthday is coming up. This is true. Everyone can send me money. Okay. Address. Well, Thursday, Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, and that takes us back. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Bye. So long.